The church has a heavenly mandate to declare the truth of the gospel in spite of cultural bullies. The question is, will we do it or will we back down? Today we discuss that, as well as the fact that a couple of weeks ago we talked about the fact that a strong, ardent opponent of Christianity, Richard Dawkins, believes we need more Christianity in the world today. And today we discuss the fact that an observant Jew thinks the world needs more, wait for it, Jesus. This is your favorite night of the week. It's the Deep End Podcast. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Tuesday night, 7 p.m., the Deep End Podcast brought to you here in the bowels of Waters Church in North Attleboro, Massachusetts. My name is Tim. I'm the host of the podcast. This podcast brings you news, information, and inspiration from the Word of God as we go through Season 3, Episode 9, Acts chapter 4, that's where we're going to be in a few moments as we discuss God's Word together. But before we get there, want to let us just continue to remind you to like and subscribe on our YouTube page. And by YouTube page, I mean the Deep End YouTube page. Some of you still haven't moved over from the Waters Church YouTube page. We want you to move over. Would you please do that? And if you're tuning in later, I hope to remind you. Hopefully, I'll remember to remind them. I think that's what happens. People miss the first five minutes, then they don't move over. So if you haven't yet moved over and subscribe to uh, the Deep End TV YouTube page, youtube.com slash the Deep End TV, and that will take you right to the page, and then you can subscribe, and please like the video. All that stuff helps get this video farther and wider, and we want to get the message out. So welcome also to our radio audiences on FM 93 and AM 1240 in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, watching, or I'm sorry, listening, (laughs) not watching on radio, listening uh, 7 p.m. on Thursday nights. Hello, Woonsocket. Welcome to our Spotify audience, and welcome soon, not yet, but hopefully soon, the WEZE radio uh, station in Boston, Massachusetts. We are so excited to have you all here. Welcome in. Let's get into the Deep End News. Deep End News. The news you choose if you could choose news. So this is kind of an interesting article. A couple of weeks ago on the Deep End podcast, I talked about the fact that Richard Dawkins, who is a notable and very ardent atheist who really has spent the latter, larger portion of the last two decades um, vilifying, demonizing, and trying to uh, eradicate Christianity and all religious faith from uh, the cultural mindset of the cultural West, now says... Maybe we went too far with that, and people need God, or they need some form of God or some idea of God to keep them from doing bad stuff. Well, they do, but they need God for more than that, um, and we all know that as Christians. But <coughs> what's interesting is this this is now becoming a trend. I keep hearing more and more stories like this, and I want to introduce you to another story that I read this past week. Actually, this was sent to me by a guy named Dean in our church here at Waters Church. Uh, thank you, Dean, for sending me these articles. I love it. Here's the title of the article. It's called, I'm an observant Jew. Here's why I want more Americans to come to Jesus. I'm an observant Jew. Here's why I want more Americans to come to Jesus. I think that is a great headline. Well, well, what's the story here? Uh, This person writing, her name is Melissa Langsam Bronstein, and she writes in this article about how Kanye West's music album, Jesus is King, is really having an impact and is a very positive and uplifting album. It is, because when you talk about Jesus, that should lift your spirits. Jesus is the author of life, and he is the one who lifts us up, right? He doesn't cast us down. And the resurrection itself is an uplifting (laughs) message uh, in more ways than one. Well, she writes this. There's no doubt Kanye West has found religion. Listen to the musically arresting Jesus is King album, and you'll hear a powerful, powerful, positive case for a personal relationship with God but will secular Americans heed his call? And she writes, when R.E.M., I'm just going to highlight some of the article. When R.E.M. recorded Losing My Religion in 1990, an overwhelming 86% of Americans identified as Christians. 86%. That's high. Uh, That number dropped to 77% in 2001. And according to Pew Research's new survey of American Christianity, this one in 2018 and 19, that figure further plummeted to 65%. So from from 1990 to uh, 2019, okay, went from 86% down to 65%. Now here's the real troubling news. Only 49% of millennials adopt the Christian faith. 
That's still a large number of people. I think we get a little bit too worked up about these numbers. That's still enormously large. Like Christianity has never been in history uh, that th- this uh, overwhelming majority. It's always been about one third of the of the population of the world for the last thousand years or so. But this in the cultural West, America and and Europe. Uh, is a seismic change, 86% to 65%. That's a seismic change. And she writes this. I love this quote. If everything were humming along smoothly, it might not matter. But America, everything's not okay. Yes, that's right. And she, she writes, more than 130 people in the United States die after overdosing on opioids every day. Every day, 130 people die from, from drug overdose. Babies born suffering from opioid withdrawal are born every 15 minutes, and the number of opioid-addicted adults unable to care for their own children is overwhelming the state foster care systems. The number of kids placed in foster care in the United States due to parental drug use, listen to this, has more than doubled over the past two decades, rising to nearly 100,000 children every year, simply because adults are hooked on drugs and cannot care for themselves, never mind they're young. She writes, Americans are more depressed than ever. Deaths from despair, deaths by suicide or drug abuse and substance abuse have actually, for the last two to three years, been lowering the life expectancy of the average American or European. Americans are also lonelier than ever. One quarter of Americans have no one to confide in about the ups and downs of life. Last year, Pew Research found that roughly one in 10 Americans say they feel lonely all or most of the time. And then she concludes with this heading in her last paragraph. What you really need is Jesus. Now, mind you, this is not a Christian Jew. This is not a Messianic Jew. This is an observant Orthodox Jew who does not believe Jesus is the Messiah, but says, you know what Christians, I mean, you know what America needs? (laughs) Jesus. And she has stats to back that up. She talks about how church-growing faithful, and let me just make sure you understand who she's talking about, faithful church-going Christians. So there's two groups that don't fall into that group. Um, People who identify as Christian but don't go to church. That's one that doesn't fall into the group she's she's about to talk about. And people who go to church but they aren't Christian. And those two groups exist, and they are not part of the group she's talking about here. What she's talking about is people who go to church and are Christians. That's two in one. Go to church and Christians. And she says they are, statistically anyway, far less likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, far less likely to be lonely. Uh, Instead, they have meaningful friends that they regularly connect with, far more caring toward people with different views than their own, and far more satisfied with life overall. Uh, The fact of the matter is she has picked up, this observant, non-Christian Jewish person has picked up on the reality of what this Deep End podcast is all about, what we do as the Christian's of this society and what we've been saying since Jesus rose again. You need more to this life than just breathing, food, pleasure, work, money, and stuff. You need Jesus. You need something deep inside your heart. And that's why we do the Deep End Podcast. And that's why I talk about these things. And I just think that if there is one benefit to the growing secularization of our culture, it is going to be this. More and more people are going to wake up to the reality that we need Jesus. And this is a golden opportunity. It's a golden opportunity for the church. Do you know why? Because the church has got to come out of its closet that it has been forced into by secular bullies and start proclaiming that Jesus is the way. And let the chips fall where they may. People might hate. People might dismiss. People might reject. But some people will receive it. And never before, in my lifetime anyway, have I seen a more golden opportunity for the church to speak up and speak out and share the message of Jesus. That's the news, and it ties perfectly to where we're going in our study of the book of Acts. The book of Acts. Today's topic, the church in conflict. The church in conflict. So we are now four chapters in, and we're going to see the church engaged in conflict. Let's look at this title, The Church in Conflict, Why Conflict is Inevitable, inevitable, Necessary, and Good for the Church. Yes. Yes, dear Christian. Conflict. I know. It's a dirty word to some people. It is inevitable. It is necessary. And it is 
good. Yes. Conflict is a part of Christianity. And if you're a Christian, you know this by experience. I mean, I, and let me make sure that you understand, if you're a Christian who actually lives your faith out in the public square, you know it's going to bring conflict into your life. Now, Jesus warned repeatedly about this. He said in Matthew 10, 16, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Conflict. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, Paul, the great apostle, who gave his life in mission, uh, in gospel mission, to spread Jesus' fame and glory around the known world at the time, said these words, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, for a wide door of effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <laughs> I, got a, I got a great opportunity, Paul says, and guess what? I got a lot of enemies. Conflict. Well, this is nothing new to the movement of the Judeo-Christian faith. Back in the, in the Psalms, David writes in Psalm 119, 157, he says, many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries. Some of you, you got that guy at work always needling you about your faith. Maybe you got that family member who doesn't respect, doesn't appreciate, puts down your faith. Maybe you have that child who rejects your faith, and it hurts. It pierces the heart, I know. Moms and dads out there shedding tears for their children who have scorn the faith that they worked so hard to rear their children in. There's a lot of adversaries out there, guys. This, this movement comes part and parcel with conflict. Acts chapter 14, 21, it says this, when they had preached the gospel to the city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. This is Paul and Barnabas, and it says this in verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. Don't miss that. We enter the kingdom of God. How? Through many tribulations. Philippians 3.18, Paul says, For many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Verse after verse after verse informs the Christian we will face hostility. We will face cultural bullies. We will face an increasing number of adversarial both people and concepts that strike at the heart of what is so precious to us. The reason why we struggle with conflict as Christians is because our Christian faith is so personal to us. I mean, it's really an identity. It is an identity, and it's, it's a heartfelt identity. And a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of Christians that I know, and I'm one of them, you, you can attack a lot of things about me. You can attack my looks. You can attack, you know, maybe where I live. You can attack maybe, I don't know, my social economic status, whatever, even my color, the color of my skin. You can attack that. But when you attack my faith, that's personal. That's real deep for a Christian. And so if we're not careful, uh, we'll get sideswiped. We'll get really, like, you know, um, beaten out, beaten up and depressed and despondent about the fact that our faith is going to face conflict. That's what happens continually and repeatedly in the book of Acts. Thank God that the book of Acts is here. Thank God we're going through the study because I think we're going to arm ourselves today as true believers in Christ, knowing that if our forefathers in the faith went through these things, we will go through these, these things too, and going through these things actually links us up in heart and uh and in mindset with our forefathers, with our forebears, Peter, James, John, Paul the Apostle, coming soon in the book of Acts, right? Three things that I want to say about the, uh, the, the idea of church and conflict. Three things. Uh, number one, it is inevitable. It's going to happen. We've already talked about that. You're going to face conflict. The question is, will you capitulate or will you stand strong and impact culture? It's, it's so intim intimidating, too, in our day because culture is everywhere. Culture comes at you all the time, through your social media, uh, through the television. These are like the television and film and all that. That's old school cultural intimidation. Now it's in your phone, it's in your pocket, can be even on your wrist, where you are just getting endless inundated messaging of how, you know, Christians, you better get with it because this is the way of the world, and if you don't change with the world, if you don't follow suit, you will be ousted. Okay, so, but we're going to face this. It's inevitable. But it's also going to come from an unexpected place. And I think this is an important point. 
Where will our conflict come from? We've got to look at where the conflict came from in Jesus' life. And we've got to look at the conflict, where, uh, where the conflict came from in the apostles' life. And it didn't come from the bad people. <laughs> That's what I think we forget, okay? Conflict is always going to come against the church from the people who think they're religiously good. Please don't miss this. I've been doing ministry vocationally for 20 years. I've been a Christian over 43 years. And it took a long time for me to wake up to the reality that the people who are going to oppose the gospel are going to be the people who um, don't believe they need the gospel. This is all over the book of uh, Galatians. Galatians is written to a church where uh, people wanted to bring them back to the religious observance of Judaism. And, G and Paul is writing saying, nope, Christ alone. Christ plus nothing equals everything. That's the, that's the theme of Galatians. And, and he talks about that. He says you're going to experience some trouble from the uh, spiritual older brothers, if you will, the religious people. It's not the atheists that attack Christians. The atheists might think we're crazy, but they don't really viciously attack us. It's not going to be the robbers and the criminals. It's going to be the people who are ardently religious, who think they are right. Because when, it, when you become religious, before you know it, you become a system of religion, and that system becomes totalitarian. And then when it becomes totalitarian, it gets intolerant. You ever notice how the people who were screaming for tolerance for 30 years, 40 years in this country are now the most intolerant group in the world? And all this is nothing new. Power, right? When, when, when a group of people has cultural power over the country or over the society, they tend to be intolerant. This has happened in the Christian movement as well, by the way. 500 years ago, we celebrate the Reformation, but the Reformation that brought about Protestant Christianity to the world, that brought about justification by faith, that brought about the Bible in the hands of the common man, all these things that we take for granted today as Christians, you understand that men died and, and were persecuted and tortured to, to help make that happen because the Catholic Church in the 1500s had become totalitarian and intolerant of anyone who didn't toe the line that they laid out. So conflict is always going to be there. And I thought about this line. This comes from an unexpected place. Here's what I want you to hear me say. Those most devoted to the idea of salvation by works typically oppose those saved by grace. Those most devoted to the idea of salvation by works. In other words, salvation by works is, I'm a good person because I'm a good person. I did good. I am good. Or I am religious. Or I do these religious things. And by the way, it doesn't even have to be Christian religious. It could be Muslim religious. It could be Hindu religious. In fact, some of the worst persecution in the world today is happening in India as Hindus and Muslims persecute Christians in the name of their religious faith. See, religion is poison. Religion can become poison in a culture because it becomes totalitarian. And when you think that you have earned goodness in yourself, you tend to hate people and oppose people who find goodness as a gift from God. Why? Because you look at yourself and you say, I worked all that time trying to make myself a good person, and that person's going to claim that they're close to God? How dare they? Right? This was the problem, by the way, and we're going to find out in the book of Acts, with the Jews and the Christian Jews. They didn't like the idea of Gentiles coming into the faith without obedience to the 613 Torah commandments. They had a hard time with that. Why? Because they had towed the line for so many years. How dare these people come in like Johnny-come-latelys and just say, well, I believe in Jesus and now I'm part of the movement. How dare they say it? They need to earn their stripes. Because well, guess what that is? That's religious intolerance. It is what I just said. The most devoted to the idea, those most devoted to the idea of salvation by works typically oppose those saved by grace. Now, now Paul talks about this in Galatians, and I just want you to know so that we're not caught off guard as Christians. In Galatians chapter 4, he talks about Abraham's two sons, and he says this in verse 22. He says, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, now that was Sarah's maiden, Hagar, and one by a free woman, that was Sarah. 
And he says, that the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Don't miss that. He says, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to, present, to the present Jerusalem. And he says, for she is in slavery with her children, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is a mother. What is he talking about, Christians? You know what he's talking about? He's talking about this. First off, he's talking about the fact that those who want to go back to Judaism to say that unless you believe in Christ and obey the Jewish law, you're not saved, those people are spiritual slaves because they think they're earning their salvation. That's what he's saying. And so he's looking back to Abraham's two sons, and he's saying they are spiritual Ishmaels. How do you get an Ishmael? Think about it. How did Abraham get Ishmael? How did he get him? Because he didn't wait for God's promise. He didn't trust God's word. He listened to his wife, didn't he? He listened to his wife, just like Adam listened to Eve. And when he listened to her and obeyed her and slept with Hagar, he gets the handmaiden's son. And, and that's a big mess for Abraham because guess what? Eventually the promise comes to pass. Sarah has a son according to the promise. She's well past childbearing age, and she has a son because why? Because God's word is faithful. All these things are allegories. As well as history, it's also an allegory for our salvation, that we are born again not because of our works, but because of the promise of God. That went to, In order to become a Christian, all you need to do is believe the promise. The promise of what? That Jesus has paid the price for your sins. He died, he rose again, and he's coming back. Like, that is the coolest thing ever, right? But guess who hates that? People who think they earned their righteousness, works righteousness. And so the Bible talks about this in Genesis 21, that there comes a moment when Isaac is born, and Ishmael, the son of the slave woman, who represents religious people, taunts Isaac. He actually scorns Isaac. And that's when Sarah kind of flips out, and like any wife, she's like, he's not going to treat my son like that. Get that woman out of our house. And Abraham is a typical man. He's like, okay, honey, and he gets her out of the house, right? And then this is why Paul resolves back in Galatians 4, okay, using that story as an allegory for our salvation. Look what he says in verse 29 of chapter 4. He says this, but just as, as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What is he saying? He's saying exactly what I just told you. He's saying those most devoted to the idea of salvation by works. I'm a good person. I, th we are right. Our religion is the religion. And we have earned it. They hate the idea of salvation by grace. Because it undercuts everything that they're about. It undercuts all their efforts. Now, why do I bring this up? Because it's not just going to happen in the church. That happens in the church all the time, by the way. Churches become religious institutions and no longer gospel um, proclaimers. And that's a great question for you. Is your church a inst religious institution or is it a gospel proclaiming church? It, you, you'll be able to tell if it's a religious institution because the people who have been there the longest will typically look down their noses at the people who are there the shortest. Um, they'll have standards that the Bible doesn't impose on people, like dress standards, and they'll have moral standards, and they'll have legalistic standards that you have to earn, you know, the, 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 the acceptability of these people by your moral obedience becomes religious institutionalism. Now, that happens in the church, but guess what, American Christians? Guess what's happening right now? Secularism has become a religious faith. Secularism. Like, sec it's so funny, because secularism is supposed to be no religion, right? But it's funny how it has now actually become a religious faith. I will prove it to you. Because in secularism, you have to obey the commandments of secularism, or else you have to be politically correct. You have to say the right thing, use the right pronoun, believe the right thing about marriage, about life, about abortion, about hot topic issues, about feminism, about all these other ideas. And you have to toe that line. You have to be politically correct at all times. That's religious devotion, friends. You have to agree with their moral framework or else. That's doctrine. These are religious terms. It's just different uh, phrases for them. And by the way, in secularism today, more than ever before, you have to be perfect. <laughs> you have to be 
perfect, or else they will cancel you. It's called cancel culture. Have you heard this term? Cancel culture. See, the first sign of religious intensity is intolerance for opposing views. In other words, we are the right ones, you are the wrong ones, and we will vilify you and wreck you if you try to come at us or even just differ from us. That's called, that's called religious intensity. That's called religious systems. And, and this has always been the case. Sometimes it's actually been in the church, like we talked about, the Catholic, medieval Catholic age, sometimes in, in Baptist churches, in Pentecostal churches, or now, again, in secularism. There's, there's this move toward secularism in our culture, secularism that, that proved so fatal to so many millions of people in the last century, right? They did this recent uh, st- uh, survey of 16 to 24-year-olds, 16 to 24-year-olds in this country, and it found out that 28% of them had never even heard of Joseph Stalin. Joseph Stalin, who murdered 60 million of his own people in the name of communist atheism. Atheistic communism, sorry, long way to say it. Atheistic communism. And 28%, one out of three, 16 to 24-year-olds, have no idea who he is. 70% of them had never heard of Mao Zedong, who, who murdered 50 million Chinese people in the name of atheistic communism. You know the greatest trick the devil has ever pulled on the human race? The greatest trick the devil has ever pulled on the human race is to convince people that he does not exist. And that's exactly what's happening in the cultural West right now. That's exactly what's happening. You get canceled culture because... We have moved so far away from Christianity. We have become, our culture at least, has become intolerant on, and opposing and, and openly hostile to those who would hold a different opinion. Now, Barack Obama, God bless his heart, our former president, uh, made a statement, is in the New York Times, on call-out culture, and he said basically, that's not activism. This is a headline from the New York Times. And he basically said, this cancel culture nonsense has got to stop. This is Barack Obama, who in many ways, I think, actually helped create cancel culture. But here he is in the New York Times saying, he says, quote, there are, the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. And this idea of purity and that you've never compromised and that you're always politically woke, you should get over that quickly. And the crowd kind of laughed when he said that. He said, this, there, there's a sense sometimes, this is all him saying this, there's a sense sometimes of the way of me t- making change is to be as judgmental as possible about other people, and that's enough. If I tweet or hashtag about how you didn't do something right or used the wrong verb, then I can sit back and feel pretty good about myself. Did you see how woke I was? I called you out. He says, that's not activism. That's not bringing about change. If all you're doing is casting stones, you're probably not going to get that far. And I have to say, and I don't say this much about him, I agree hundred and ten percent. That's right. That's you see the religious nonsense too. That is is obsession about. We could use Jesus' own words here. Basically, Obama's saying exactly what Jesus said two thousand years ago. If you're obsessed about the speck in your brother's eye, whether that be a religious speck, or you know Christian speck, or Jewish speck, or a secular speck, you're you you're out of line morally according to the secular guidelines, political correctness. But you're not worried about the log in your own eye. That, Religious terms can be applied to this stuff. That's why I say secularism has become a religious. Well, I agree with him. Guess who did not agree with President Barack Obama? The New York Times. <laughs> the New York Times actually published an editorial piece titled Obama's Very Boomer View of Cancel Culture. And the author basically makes this claim that cancel culture, you know, is necessary because all cancel culture is is a few young people getting on Twitter to express their frustration with people of different views. That was, the, that was basically the gist of that article in response to Obama's criticism of call-out culture. Well, I'm sorry, but that's not all cancel culture is. There's, pl- there's a plethora of evidence that cancel culture is typically violent and overtly or openly hostile to those with opposing views of, against secularism. It's why Kevin Hart was removed from hosting the Oscars because of decades-old tweets about homosexuality. <laughs> And he had to apologize for six months. He had to pay. He had to, he had to do penance. <laughs> right? It's why a conservative speaker goes to University of California, Berkeley campus, and the protests erupt so much. In two, this is in 2017. That the, the students in that college uh, destroyed $500,000 worth of property. Because why? Because a guy with a different view was about to speak on campus, invited by 
a campus organized group. The damage included shooting commercial-grade fireworks into buildings and at police officers, smashing ATMs, setting fires, dismantling barricades, and using them as bats to break windows, throwing rocks at police officers, and even hurling Molotov cocktails. $500,000 worth of damage at the University of California, Berkeley, where, by the way, free speech started in this country. The fight for free speech started. Now it's being shut down. Secularism is becoming religious. Or how about Annie Moritz from Bryn Mawr College? She was a freshman, and she posted on Facebook about a ride-sharing opportunity to get a ride where? Guess where? To a Trump rally. She was so viciously attacked on social media, she had to see a counselor. She considered suicide, called a suicide hotline, and eventually had to drop out of school. That, my friend, is not a few people on Twitter just expressing their political viewpoints. That, my friend, is hostility, conflict, it is cancel culture, and it is absolutely anathema to everything America should stand for, to everything Christianity actually stands for. So you've got to understand something. Secularism is becoming a religion, and big tech is in on this. Google is in on this. They, uh, big report, actually, just this week. Uh, Google manipulates search results heavily. This is from businessinsider.com. They prioritize results for Amazon and large businesses over smaller ones. They also remove autocomplete results that involve sensitive topics like immigration and abortion. They even outright blacklist some websites because of the views of the company and what they believe. I mean, this is what is happening right now in our country, and big tech is a part of the problem, honestly. I don't use Google anymore. I don't know if you guys over there at our media department, you, you, you Google anymore? I use DuckDuckGo. I like DuckDuckGo. Go to DuckDuckGo. This podcast is not brought to you by DuckDuckGo. But if you're out there, DuckDuckGo, maybe you'd like some free advertising, uh, some paid advertising <laughs> on the Deep End Podcast. Anyway, uh, this report just came out from a congressional uh, hearing that was held uh, December uh, last year. Um, April Glazer, a pro-choice writer for Slate, searched abortion on YouTube, and the results that she saw from her search, she didn't like. So she wrote uh, an email to YouTube complaining about the search results that she got from writing a search for abortion. And when she checked on Monday, she saw that the search results had been adjusted so that she got uh, results that were more to her liking. She would later receive a response from YouTube sp a YouTube spokesman saying that the company is working to provide more credible news content from its search and discovery algorithms. M what, what is my point? Why am I bringing all this stuff, this stuff up? Because, guys... Um, Secularism is so religious now, they are actually coercing and shaping your reality in ways you may not even be aware of. You, I, I know this for a fact. Sometimes I'll go to Google for a search and I'll think, I remember this article I read one time and I'll search for that article. I can't find it anymore. I can't find, it's gone. What's happening? They're in the back rooms adjusting the algorithms, adjusting the search results so that they can shape you. Do you understand that? Did you know that? I hope you're aware of these things. If you're not, if you're not you need to be aware of these things. So here's my point. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will be baited and hooked and trapped into the grip of secular humanism, and you won't even know it. Be mindful, friends. There is a conflict. The church is going to face conflict in more ways than one. So it brings me to the last point about the church and conflict, and that is that conflict is actually good for the church. It is. It's, it's good, and that's what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 4. All that to get to the text, finally. I'm sorry, I know. I, I bloviate way too much about news, but I love that part of the podcast. I hope it helps you. Let's get into the text, shall we? Here, here's what it says. Reading from verse 5, it says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, and all who are of the high priest family. Okay, what <clears throat> what's happening? Remember last week, um, Peter and John, they heal the lame man, and then Peter preaches the gospel, and then uh, 3,000 people or 5,000 men are added to the church. Probably 20,000 people total are added to the church. Beautiful moment. But the what happens? The religious people, the system, hates this Jesus stuff, this message of salvation through the name of Jesus. How dare they? Why? Because they had cultural power and they were totalitarian and intolerant. 
the exact same thing that we're going to face with secularism today. They faced already. The church has done this before. That's why we do well to pay attention to the book of Acts. So they're annoyed. They're bothered. Verse 2 talked about that. They were greatly annoyed. And it mentioned in verse... um, in verse 1 in chapter 4, who was bothered? The captain of the temple. This guy was the second in command of the Jewish religious system of the day. And the Sadducees. And the Sadducees are an interesting group in the New Testament. you got to know who these people are. They were the religious aristocracy. Uh, they were the religious and political power players of the day. They loved Rome. They didn't hate Rome. They loved Rome. They wanted to work with Rome. They thought Rome's got all the guns or, you know, bows and arrows back then, the chariots. So let's work with them to impose our view of the world. So they had no problem with Rome. They worked with Rome. They wanted to protect Roman power. And they didn't like anything that threatened Roman power because Rome gave them their power. Now, the, now the Sadducees also did a few other things theologically. They denied the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The old preacher joke is they were sad, you see, <laughs> because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Stupid preacher joke. Okay, Uh, they denied angels, they denied demons, they denied the spiritual world. They believed that man was in charge of his own fate and the direction of the world. I would liken them to a lot of liberal, white, mainline, Christian, quote-unquote, Christian churches today, where basically the miracles have been, you know, denied, and the resurrection is no longer really a thing. Jesus spiritually arose, so we spiritually arose. There's a lot of churches like that. Anyway, they're greatly annoyed because these guys, and, and, and you have to see these guys are like older brothers in the family of God. And they're like, hey, we paid our dues. And who, who are you guys, you upstart Galileans from the backwoods of Israel, who are you guys to start come telling these people that they need to believe in this guy, Jesus, that we crucified a couple of weeks ago? Who are you? They're annoyed. Conflict. Now, Jesus told the disciples in John 11, he said, the chief priests and the Pharisees um, are going to come at you. <clears throat> they're going to come at you because they're gonna, they came at me. And so that's where the conflict comes from, the religious institutions. So then it says this in verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, in their, in their midst, they inquired, uh, by what power or what name did you do this? Now, I just want to make sure you're aware of something, that <clears throat> they're in the midst of the, the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin, okay, was, a, was the leadership council, it was the senate, if you will, of Judaism in the first century, plus the high priest, 70 senators and one high priest. A lot like the White House and the legislative branch of our country. So that's who <laughs> Peter and John are now brought into to face. It's like they were going in before the Supreme Court of Israel. It's really intimidating. You Now, we read these passages because it's an old book, and it's like, you know, it's kind of we've been, if you're like me, you were Sunday schooled these stories, like so you see it on the flannel graph, and it's not that serious. Oh, by the way, the flannel graph is coming back, deep enders. But anyway, you see it, it's not that serious, and, and so what you have to realize, though, is that this literally really happened, and John and James, these guys, uh, Peter, I'm sorry, Peter and John are brought before the Supreme Court of their country because they're talking about Jesus. How would you feel? I would be totally intimidated by that. You would be too. The church is going to face immense conflict, intimidating circumstances. Maybe you feel that at work. Maybe you feel that where you go to school, intimidated. That's one of the number one tactics of the enemy, to intimidate you by the scale or the size of the crowd that's hostile to you or your faith. Well, what does Acts teach us? The very next verse. I love it. Look what it says. Then Peter, what? Filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm, I love that. Do you know why? Because here's how the Holy Spirit fills you. This This is when it happens. When does it happen? It happens when you need it to happen. So Peter could be intimidated. He's not. Why? Because guess what? The Holy Spirit is there, ready to fill him and to empower him. Some Christians say, I want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but they don't want to face circumstances where they will need the Holy Spirit, right? That's the thing. That's the catch-22 of the Holy Spirit's fullness. In other words, the Holy Spirit's not there just to make you feel, you know, oozy inside. The Holy Spirit's not there just to make you feel warm and cozy. 
The Holy Spirit is there to empower you to face challenging circumstances in the name of Jesus and do things right to bring glory to him. That's exactly what happens. So let's read on. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man by what, man, by what means this man has been healed, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So same thing he said to the crowd back last episode. We talked about this in chapter 3. He now says to the Supreme Court, <clears throat> are you picking up on a theme? The Holy Spirit wants to keep your life consistent. What you say to one group of people, you'll say to another group of people. Isn't that cool? Some of you, you face, you're two-faced. You put a different face on for this group because you're worried about what they think. And then you're different when you go to church or different when you go to uh, your Christian group. And that's not Holy Spirit fullness. The Holy Spirit fullness gives you the power to be the same person bringing glory to Jesus no matter if you're in front of a crowd that loves it or in front of a crowd that hates it. That's Holy Spirit power. And Jesus had warned the disciples about this in Matthew 10. They're going to drag you before uh, their councils, and they're going to drag you before governors and kings. And then he said what? He said, don't worry about what to say beforehand, because the Holy Spirit will give you the words. In fact, in Luke chapter 21, verse 14, I love this. Jesus says, settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I love that. Jesus is like, when you're dragged before the uh, cultural institutions of power and they're going to threaten you and they're going to want to kill you, don't even think about what you're going to say beforehand. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you such a way you're going to have something to say that will come from him. So don't prepare anything because you might mess up what the Holy Spirit actually wants you to say. I just, I love that. So here they are experiencing exactly what Jesus talked about. Let's go on to verse 11. It says, this Jesus, this is Peter's sermon again. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now, he's quoting right out of Psalm 118 there. And there is salvation in no one else. No one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Guys, it's the, la it's the lost battle of Christianity today. In our world of pluralism and secularism and all kinds of other in-isms, the church has lost its prophetic voice to raise its voice and say, there's only salvation in Jesus. And I hope you hear me say it. Uh, we have got to say that. We've got to make that clear. There, there, there's no other salvation path. There, it is not all roads lead to the same place. It is not the elephant illustration. Like, religious people are just blind men around an elephant, and one blind man grabs the trunk and says, oh, God is like a tree. Or, or God is like a snake, I'm sorry. And one blind man grabs a leg and says, no, God is like a, like a tree. And then one blind man grabs the side and says, no, God is like this big rock. And another blind man grabs the ear, and he says, oh, God is like this floppy little thing. So those are all the religious people having this partial understanding of God, and so they're not all exclusive. They're all got a portion of it. That's a bunch of baloney. First off, it's baloney because how dare the person making that assumption about all the other religious people know that the whole thing is a stinking elephant? <laughs> how do you know it's an elephant in the first place? That makes you uh, exclusive about your truth. Isn't it? All truth claims to, in some way are exclusive. Even the claim that all religions are the same is an exclusive claim. You're demanding that everybody believe what you believe about all religions. And anybody who says that, that that's, and especially people who say that all religions are basically the same, has just proven their ignorance that they have never spent one second actually studying religions. <laughs> you need to take a comparative religious course uh, because they are not the same in any way. In many respects, they are uh, uh, polar opposites of each other. And Christianity is different than them all because we don't believe in salvation by works or by your works or by your obedience or by your moral performance. We believe it's by grace. And there's no other religion that says that. And there's no other name by which we must be saved. That's exactly what Peter says here. That's what the Holy Spirit gives you. This is the second thing about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives you confidence to say what's right even when other people think you're completely wrong. And this is exactly what we see in the apostles, to be bold enough to say things that might not be, quote-unquote, what? 
politically correct with the system under which Peter and John are residing and ministering. But the power of the Holy Spirit gives them the boldness to say it and let the chips fall where they may. Okay, moving on. Verse 13. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So many cool passages right here. So many cool verse words. First, notice, they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Uh, the Holy Spirit makes a visual impression on your life and character. People will see that you were different. Notice that they also says, it also says that they perceived, okay, and uh, just a little point of note here, people's perception of you is not reality, friends. People's perception of you is not reality. They perceived that they were uneducated, common men. Uh, cool little Greek word study here for the word common in Greek is idiotes. <laughs> what do you see in that word? Idiot. <laughs> in other words, they thought they were idiots. But really, the Greek word idiotes means um, a private individual or someone who has not gone uh, through any kind of official training. So they see them as, hey, you guys didn't go through our training. What are they saying? You didn't tow the line that we towed. You didn't go through our school system. You didn't do what we did to be who we are. How dare you? See how it all applies today? It's amazing reality. It's an amazing common denominator to totalitarian systems that they always have a litmus test for education. There's always an educational litmus test for totalitarian uh, systems. In other words, you didn't go to Harvard. You didn't go to Yale. You didn't, go, you didn't have my degree. You didn't do six years of law school or whatever. So who are you to say anything? Well, this is going to be the conflict that the church is going to face. Who are you to say anything? You're just a Christian. Maybe you feel like that, intimidated by uh, the world because you didn't have the education. Guys, I've got great news for you. The Holy Spirit is the wisdom that you need. <laughs> he will provide words that your opponents cannot argue with. We will see that in Acts chapter eight, uh, very short. Uh, Acts chapter seven, very shortly. The Holy Spirit has been doing this for two thousand years, guys. Because think about this: Who are we talking about today? Or let me ask this question. When was the last time you ran into a Pharisee? No, no, no. I mean a, a legit Pharisee. Like, when was the last time you ran into somebody who was of the, of the Sadducean sect? They don't, they don't exist anymore. Okay, history has proven it, that the people who are filled with the Holy Spirit have out, outlasted and have out-proclaimed uh, the opposing viewpoints, no matter how powerful they had been at the time. Amen. So it goes on. Oh, uh, just one last point about that verse. Could we just put that back up? It says that they, saw, they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I just think that's so cool, too. They recognized that they had been with Jesus. I mean, they, know, they knew. So there's this, there's this recognizable quality uh, to being with Jesus. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, so they're like, all right, go away, go away, because we can't do anything about this. You, got, you healed this guy. I don't know. We're going to figure something out. So they had this little private meeting. When they commanded them to leave, they said they conferred with one another, one another, verse 16, saying, what shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them. That's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. And then it says in verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Verse 18. So they called them back in. And they said, don't speak. Don't teach at all in the name of Jesus. Intimidation. Did you notice, too, that they're really concerned about the teaching? <laughs> they're really concerned about the message. Why? Because that's what the devil hates. The devil hates the message. The devil hates the message that you, with all your sin, with all your shame, with all your guilt, could be made right with God in an instant by placing your faith in Christ. He hates that message so much. Why? Because he knows it's the death knell to his grip on you. He knows it's the thing that's going to break his lies over your life. I just find it tremendously interesting that they are more upset about the message being proclaimed than Peter and John doing miracles that they can't argue with. I just... That's just cool to me. Anyway, verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, saying, 
Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we, oh man, love it, cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. In other words, I, we can't stop this, guys. I, you know, you're, you're, you're very official today. You guys look impressive. This whole setting is very intimidating, but we can't stop. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. And you know what? When it comes to witnessing and sharing your faith, that's all you need to do. You just need to tell people what you've seen and heard. You just need to tell people what Christ has done in your life. Okay, verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Because of the people, they were all praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. And so look at this, verse 23. When they, released, when, when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. Um, when I was reading this, the very first word that caught me this week was just that word friends, because I just thought to myself, how cool is that? Here they were in the midst of this hugely intimidating council, 71 prestigious, scholarly, knowledgeable power players of the day. You know, they're standing in the Supreme Court Hall of Israel and they're getting hammered and they're getting accused of uh, vile things and they're being reprimanded and, 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 and threatened. And when the thing's over, what happens? They go back to the church. They go back to their friends. See, this is why you need a church right here. This is why you need a small group if you don't have a small group. You need some people that when, when the devil turns up the heat on your life because you're working in an environment that's very hostile to Christianity or maybe you're working with people who hate you for your Christian convictions or you're, you're in that school and everyone in your schoolroom or your classroom completely disagrees with you about all kinds of things and you feel so alone, you need a place to come back to where you've got friends that will be there for you and believe with you and that will pray with you. Look what it says next. And when they heard it, verse 24, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you have anointed, both Herod, the Jewish leader, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman leader, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever, what? Your hand and your plan predestined to take place. Guys, don't miss this. The early church had a wonderful understanding of the nature of God's sovereignty. And I think that we Christians miss this today. God is sovereign over what is over you. Uh, they knew, okay, Herod did this, Pilate did this, the Gentile, the Roman soldiers put him on the cross, um, and the Jewish leaders, they handed him over, and they all came together to put Jesus to death. But guess what they did? This is how we see it, God. We see it as what your hand and your plan had predestined to take place, period. Wow, what a wonderful understanding of the nature of, and listen, worldly powers and governments because we are headed into an election year, okay? We are, oh gosh, how many days? We are about 40 days away from 2020. Uh, and that means, guess what? It's, it's not just Summer Olympics. It's, it's election season, and it's going to be heated and nasty and vicious, and if you're not careful, Christian, you're going to get caught up in it, and it's going to be a whirlwind, and your mind is going to be like pulled in different directions, and the news is all going to like, you know, just come at you all the time. If you're not careful, you'll get caught up in it, and you need to have an early church view of worldly powers, Whoever's in charge, whoever's in the throne room or the Oval Office or the Senate or the legislature or whatever, they're just going to do, they might do th things that are evil, but God's going to take that evil and he's going to use it for good. See, you got to look at this in your own life personally too. Whatever is coming at you from the devil, God can use for your good. And uh, he, can, he can use it to, pro to promote you and to elevate you. 
You think it's there to offend you. It's there to, it's, it's there to actually be used and leveraged for your good. This is the gospel's central message. The devil has a funny way of constantly overplaying his hand. See, the devil gets a little piece of victory, and he thinks, and he goes too far. Like, he had a little piece of victory. He got Jesus arrested. He went too far. He put him on the cross. And God's like, okay, great, fantastic. Now I'm going to use that death to bring salvation to the world. Boom, gotcha, mic drop, done, finished. Okay, that is so cool. So this is what you got to see about your world. Your world might have some evil people doing some evil things in powerful places, but God is over that. Verse 29. Now look at what they pray for. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What did they pray for? They're, James, um, <clears throat> sorry, Peter and John basically just get accosted by the power structures of the day and the church hears about this, and they don't pray for safety. Did you know that? Did you look at that prayer? They don't say, Lord, protect us from the evil sinners. <laughs> no, they say, Lord, stretch out your hand and help us. Help us to keep speaking with boldness. By the way, boldness, you need to pray for it. The early church prayed for boldness. Are you praying for boldness in your life? And then stretch out your hand to heal, signs and wonders. Pray for those things. Don't pray for protection. Pray for power. Don't pray for safety. Pray for the Spirit's filling. This is what the church did. This is how the church, the early church, responded to conflict. And so should you. And so should I. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They got what they asked for. And the place that they were saying, I love how the fact that it says that the place where they were was shaken, but they weren't shaken. What a, what a picture. The church prays, and where the church is, everything around the church gets shaken, but the church does not get shaken. Verse 32, the last verse we're going to talk about today. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The only thing I want you to see from this verse, we'll talk about this next week too, is the full number of those who believed were of one heart. It's the first time that in talking about the numbers of the church, that Luke actually very poetically says, not a numerical count of the people, but actually a, um, a, a, a trait, a characteristic of the people. They were of one heart. So, the church in conflict. It's inevitable. Uh, it's going to come from unexpected places. That is what we talked about it earlier. Religiously, uh, religiously intense systems, whether they be secular or quote-unquote sacred, or other religions, or good personism. It's going to come from that place. The people, are, uh, the people who believe they're saved by works typically oppose those who believe they're saved by grace. And then thirdly, and thirdly it's, it's good for the church, but I want to give you one more point. You know, I'm feeling generous today on the deep end. I'm going to give you one more. <laughs> it's a little surprise point. Um, it's leverage for the gospel. Conflict it's leveraged for the gospel. I want to take you back one more thing. One more thing about this passage. I want to take you all the way back to our verse, first passage. Here's what it says. On the next day, the rulers, the elders, and scribes together in Jerusalem gathered together, all right? And they gathered together with the, all the power people. And when they had set them, Peter and John, in their midst, they started to examine them. They put them on trial. Now, I had this thought, who was in that crowd? Who was in that crowd? The rulers, the elders, the scribes. Remember, this is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of Sadducees and powerful and important Pharisees. And there were 70 of them. You know what I thought? Paul, or Saul, was in that room that day. I really have to think he probably was, because remember, he's going to tell us in Philippians that he was excelling above all his contemporaries, and he was trained by Gamaliel, one of the most noted Pharisee uh, rabbis of the day. I have to believe that Paul, the future Paul, the apostle, Saul at the time, was listening as Peter and John, these guys from the backwoods of Galilee, were talking about this Jesus. And I know he's going to oppose the church for three more chapters, but the seeds got in there. 
And he, what did he learn from this moment? He learned that the gospel got preached even when they were putting these guys on trial. And this is why he will later say from a uh, Roman prison to the Philippian church, while he's in prison, he'll say these words in Philippians 1.12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, my imprisonment has actually helped get the gospel out. You know what? When we, get, when we, get, when we face conflict, when we get attacked, um, you know what? It might feel like we're not getting anywhere. It might feel like, gosh, we're saying it and nobody's listening or, you know, we, we think uh, all they do is hate us. I, I want you to know and I want, you, I want to leave you with this thought today. There's a good chance that when you're standing for Christ and people are criticizing you and hating on you, there is quite possibly in that very crowd that is hostile to you a future believer. They just need to see you stand. They just need to see you say, I'm going to stand for Christ. I don't care what you say. I don't know. That's, that's my hope and all that, that we're going to face, all the conflict we're going to face. Uh, conflict's inevitable, necessary, good, and it's leverage for the gospel. Anyway, I hope this episode helped. I really enjoyed preparing it and uh, presenting it to you. And I want to let you know again, once more, one more time, all of those who watch The Deep End on the Waters Church YouTube channel, please go over to the Deep End TV channel, youtube.com slash deep end, the deep end, sorry, TV. Please subscribe there and join us on The Deep End on that channel every week. That's where we want you to go. Like and subscribe. Follow us on all our social media or check us out on the deepend.tv website. I'm so glad you were here. I hope you have a great week. See you next time on The Deep End. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Deep End Podcast. We pray it helps you grow in your faith and in your walk with Christ. If you don't already have a home church, we invite you to come out to one of our campuses this weekend. Check us out at waterschurch.org to find a location near you and a service time that fits your schedule. Make sure to stay tuned for next week's episode of The Deep End Podcast.